yes, my name really is Trinity. Um, I had somebody ask me one time, well, were you named after the Matrix? Yeah, because I'm 10 years old, you know. <laughs> no, there's some old Italian spaghetti Western movies, Trinity's my name, my name is still Trinity. Yeah, you didn't see him, my dad did. And uh, thus, I'm, I'm named after an old Italian spaghetti Western cowboy. If you would have watched the right movie, maybe my name would have been Clint Eastwood. I don't know. I don't. I mean, we showed a picture of my beautiful wife. Um, I'm going to show you a picture of my two daughters because uh, they look just like me, and they're adorable. So <laughs> Madison is my four-year-old, and, and Berlin is our two-year-old, and uh, they're just they're God's gift to us, and they, they teach me every day about the mercies and grace and faith of God. Hey, I just want to say thanks. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for for letting me be here this morning, and uh, just a great relationship is being formed with, with K2 and, and the, your pastors and your leadership here, and you guys are just awesome, and I, I'm just so excited to be here for the fact that here in the valley, as followers of Jesus, we're just coming together, and we're, we're partnering together, and we've got this thing going on where we're just, we're living it out, and uh, I believe in the mission of K2 and I'm thankful for the mission that God has called you on here. So thanks for letting me be here. Um, I'm just, I'm honored. I want to tell you a story before we kind of jump into Joshua chapter 2. And I think it goes along with Joshua chapter 2 and the story of Rahab. It's a story about my friend Steve. And my friend Steve was a friend of mine when I was working on my master's degree. And we went to school together. And Steve is, uh, was born with cerebral palsy and his, uh, his legs did not exactly form the way that uh, he wanted them to. And so thus Steve can't walk very well. Um, he can hardly get around on his own. Doctors told him he would never walk again when he was little. That he just, that chance was not going to be there. But through the grace and mercies of God, he, he's able to walk. And, and not just walk, Steve's a missionary. And he's a missionary in Amsterdam of all places. And so Steve called me one day, and he said, Trinity, I got to tell you just what happened. And I was like, what happened, Steve? And he's like, I went to Brussels for this, this huge party that they were having down at the, it's a festival that they were having down at the, the square there in Brussels. And he said, we got there, and the place is packed. He said, thousands and thousands of people are in this square. And, he, and now remember, Steve can't get around very well. And he said, so I'm, I'm trying to make my way through there, and I was just getting tired and worn out pushing through people. And he said, so I was trying to find a, an alleyway or an area where there was no people so I could move and uh, he said I got to the edge of this square and found this alley where literally on one side I could see thousands of people packed and on the other side there was thousands of people and I just wanted to make my way down this square and, or down this alley and I walked down the alley there's nobody there now remember Steve can't walk very fast either so Steve's making his way down this alley and he says all of a sudden I feel somebody tap me on my shoulder and so Steve turns around and he sees, said it was a Moroccan, this guy from Morocco. And, and um, said the first thing that struck me is right away the guy spoke English to me in an area that's predominantly French speaking. And he said, hey, you got some money? And Steve's like, uh, you know, like was he, he knew what was going on. And he's like, uh, uh. And then the next question was just like the first, only a little different. Guy pulled a knife out put it to Steve's belly and said, hey, you got some money? Drastically changes the question, just a tad. And Steve's like, um, yeah. 
So Steve says he reaches in and, his, and he pulls out his wallet and he starts to hand it to this guy. And the other guy's hand comes and grabs his wallet. He says, right at that moment when our, our hands were both on the wallet at the same time, from the edge of the street that I had just come, the square just packed with people. He says, this beast of a man, this huge man, yells from the other side. He said to, he goes, Trinity, you look just like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hey, is that man hurting you? Now Steve's got his wallet out, and the guy's got his hand on his wallet, and he's got a, a knife through his stomach, so he's not going to be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> slice. So he's just like, um, can't you see what's going on? You know, he's just like, ah. Uh. The guy grabs his wallet and takes off running the opposite direction. Now, remember, Steve can't exactly be in a foot pursuit after this guy and, and physically challenge this man in any way. So Arnold comes running down, gets to Steve, and he's like, what happened? And Steve says, man, that guy just stole my wallet. And Arnold goes, well, I'm a cop. <laughs> I'm a cop, you idiot. <laughs> and no, he goes, he goes, don't worry, I'll be back. And he runs after the guy. <laughs> so Steve just makes his way down and, and waits at the edge. And he's just waiting and waiting. And he goes, man, he goes, Trinity, does this seem like forever? But all of a sudden I heard sirens. And I watched as the people started to, to split like the Red Sea. And he goes, and then this little car, he goes, I think we have go-karts bigger than this back in the U.S. This little go-kart pulls up and he goes, and Arnold's riding shotgun. And he goes, and I bent down and I looked in there and he goes, and Wesley Snipes was driving. <laughs> I was like, where are you at, Universal Studios? I mean, what is, this doesn't sound like Brussels. And they're like, get in. You know, so he gets in the car and they're taking off. And they, as they're going, they're finding out that he finds out these guys are undercover cops, and they're working this festival, and this is pretty common to have pickpocketers or, or robberies in, in, in this area. And so they start telling him, well, this guy's probably buying drugs somewhere. So we're going to go to some very well-known drug areas that are close by, and we're going we're gonna to find this guy. So they're driving this go-kart around, and they're Mario karting it through Brussels, and they, they get to this place where there's this huge chain-link fence in front of them. And... Uh, Wesley and Arnold jump out, and there's that guy with Steve's wallet, and he's like buying drugs right there. And uh, they see him, and so they scale this fence, they jump over, and they run over, and they just tackle this guy. And Steve's like, it was like watching cops on, on speed. These guys are just beating this guy. And he said, literally, they're down on the ground just punching him. And they go, And Steve goes, <laughs> so they, they throw him in the go-kart and they head off to, to the police station and they get there and Arnold comes out and says that he won't sign this form that releases the wallet and any possessions that he has, they won't sign it. So apparently there's this weird law in Brussels that if you're arrested, whatever you have on your persons when you're arrested, you have to actually give them consent to take from you. And so, unlike in the U.S., but uh, he said uh, that that was, that was a thing. And so Steve's like, man, listen, I'm a, I'm a missionary. I live in Amsterdam. That's, 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 all, that's my money. That's my, my driver's license from Oregon's in there. And, 
and my credit cards. I mean, this is, this is how am I going to even get on the train and go back to Amsterdam? Amsterdam. I, I need this money. This, is, this isn't an option. So Arnold was like, okay. And so he walks in this interrogation room, and Steve says, man, it sounded like a cat was being killed in there. He's like, ah, you know, and all this going on. And he comes out, and he goes, he signed it. I remember Steve said this to me because I, I have these conversations with my friend Steve all the time. He's been pickpocketed and, and people have stolen his wallet so many times. There's like, that's like the fifth story of someone stealing his wallet. And he's, he's had his car stolen. He's had everything stolen um, in Europe. But he grew up handicapped here in the United States. And he, and he said this to me, and I'll, I'll never forget it. He said, I grew up believing that I could trust anyone and go anywhere and people would not harm me and thus I leave, live my life like that that's what I believe so that's what I do and I just remember that phrase that he said to me so when I was thinking about today when I was thinking about the story of Rahab when I was thinking about this this woman who's in a city where nobody is thinking the way she is she acted on her her beliefs what was deep down inside of her. And that's really, that's what we have with, in common with Steve and with Rahab is that you and I, deep down, we, we act on what's inside of us, what our beliefs are. What our core beliefs are is what our actions are representative of. That's what we have in common. You know, what's dormant inside of us, what is below the surface, what, our, what really our beliefs are. That, my friends, that's what we're going to act on, period. When they told me we were doing Rahab chapter 2, I was like, really? Because, I mean, I was reading the story over and over and going like, come on, God, like throw something at me. Just bam, hit me. Hit me hard with something, God. I'm reading through it and reading through it and reading through it and going, all right, there's got to be something here. And maybe you have read the story in chapter 2, much like I did. Because if you, if you fly through chapter 2, you can almost kind of miss the fine implications of what God's trying to talk, talk to you and I about when he's equating your beliefs and your actions and how they're linked together. And so let's kind of walk through this a little bit. Let's unpack this here today. And um, let's start with the very first verse, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. We know that really wasn't a big secret, but go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Well, here's the first detail that the writer of Joshua is, is telling us. The prostitute. Of all the places they go, this is the way my mind was working when I was reading. I was like, why'd they go to a prostitute's house? I was sitting there, what? But I started to think, well, it's probably because this woman would have been an outcast from society. She would have been somebody that the rest of society would have shunned, looked down on. And so it was probably a safe haven to go the place where nobody really maybe would look or maybe a place that she was already an outcast. Maybe they had an in with her. But they showed up. But the writer of Joshua makes sure he points it out to us. She was a prostitute. This is somebody on the, the lowest rung of the social ladder, the cultural ladder. She was a prostitute. 
much like a prostitute in our time, she probably wouldn't have been looked on favorably with the culture. This woman of ill repute is the woman that changes the story for us, that acts out to where we can learn from her. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. This is the faith chapter. I mean, this is the hall of faith of the Bible. And Rahab is mentioned here in the faith chapter. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Here the writer of Hebrews also points out to you and I, uh, she's a prostitute. She's a prostitute. I mean, she's listed with Noah and Enoch. And here the prostitute. You know, when I started thinking about why everyone's mentioning that she's a prostitute, why this is so big in the story, man, it hit me. God, he is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're good enough. If you've made some bad decision today, yesterday, or if you're going to make a bad decision even tomorrow. It doesn't matter what the world's branded you as what they say you are, what they say you're not. God is no respecter of that. Our faith and action depends nothing on our label in life. In fact, James also mentions Rahab when he writes his letter in the New Testament. Verse 25, he says this. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? I love how James says this. I can almost hear the sarcasm in his voice. He's going, even the prostitute gets it. As he's writing to the church. And he's going, the prostitute gets it. Here it is. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what your title is. Now, if we keep going and and skip down to verse 8 of Joshua chapter 2 and keep unpacking the gospel according to Elmer Fudd up here, sorry, (laughs) unpacking this, verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to him, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you, come, when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to those two kings and the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. I love this last part. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Did you hear what she said? This woman who lives in Jericho, who's not with the Israelites, as they come marching in, they're checking out the area. They know that everybody knows that they're coming for this land. And she goes, I know this is yours. I know God has given you Jericho. And I know your God that you serve is the God of heaven and he's the God of this earth. I know this. What an amazing statement by the prostitute in the middle of Jericho because I think we can learn from her that you can have it all up here, right? You can profess the right things. 
You can say, oh, yeah, I, I, I believe that. I, I've got those beliefs down. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But really, deep down, she could have said it and done nothing with it, and it wouldn't have been real. Do you get me here? Cognitive knowledge of God means nothing if it doesn't become actional faith. James, chapter 2, he had it down, starting in verse 17. I love this. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Listen to verse 19. You believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James, still in his almost sarcastic tone, comes across as, yeah, go ahead, say you believe it. The demons believe it. The demons got that one down, but what are you going to do with it? Is it truly real faith? Do you really believe it? Or is it just cognitive knowledge? Is it just your checklist of, these are the things I'm supposed to believe? You and I will live out truly what we believe. You and I will act on what we believe. And Rahab showed us that not only did she believe those things that were perfect in her statements, but she acted on them. She would go against a whole city that was, that was demanding. The king was demanding that they send out the spies. She'd go against all of them because she believed in God more than she believed in a culture around her, more than she believed in the king that she served, more than she believed in how others were going to view her. And deep down, she actually believed in God's protection more than she believed in the police protection of her city. James doesn't stop there. He actually says in verse 25, he says this. He says, uh, well, we, we read verse 25. I want to read it again, but keep reading in verse 26. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Verse 26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. James is saying, believe it all day long. You ain't going to do anything with it. It's dead. You have dead faith. Not active, alive, God-fearing faith. You know, faith and what we believe is not something we just talk about. It's not just something that we come on a Sunday and hear about and go, ooh, that was good. It's not something that we read about. It's not just something we blog about. It's not even something we just profess about. It's something we live out every day. Something that's acted on. As I I was telling you about uh, Steve in in Brussels, I mean, Steve lives his beliefs out. It's a funny story of of him living in, you know, that belief out. But my daughter, my four-year-old, man, you learn a lot from kids, huh? Like, they, they're no, they do not lie in their actions. Their actions truly depict their belief system, even when that belief system is very messed up. My daughter, Madison, 
she has like no fear of water whatsoever. Her belief is that water will never hurt you. Same with snow. I take her skiing. She's doing like a million miles an hour, just falling. I'm like, baby, you're going to get hurt. She's like, why, Dad? It's snow. <laughs> Same with water. She like dives in the water and she, I mean, you, she can't swim. She sinks to the bottom. You pull her up and, and she's like, I'm saying, Madison, the water's going to hurt you. And she's like, why, Dad? It's water. It's not going to hurt me. It's just water. He's like, well, just because I can throw water at you and it's not going to kill you doesn't mean you can't breathe when you're under it, sucker. <laughs> like she, I, w- I, I wish her belief system was, was different when it comes to water because my daughter will dive into water and you like pull her up. No cry. She's been under there for a minute, can't breathe, sucking in water. No cry. No, dad. It's... <gasps> <laughs> What? Please change your beliefs, girl. But our real faith, our real faith in God, it's actually shown in our actions, just as my daughter's faith in the water is shown in her actions of how she treats the water. She, she has no respect of death with the water. It's all fun. Where's our faith with God? Where really is our faith with God when we act? And a scared, nervous, I ain't going to do that. Do we truly believe it then? Or do we dive right in? Do we dive into the water and go, man, I know God's got me. I know he's got me. I know I'm going to breathe. Even though everybody, all the circumstances around me say, I'm drowning. I'm going to breathe because God told me to. And because I know this, the Bible tells me so. I was... Um, have this, this habit that every Sunday morning, if I'm speaking somewhere, if it's a Saturday night, I've got to go find a coffee shop somewhere, and I sit and go over my, my sermon notes, and I go through, and I, I write other notes and pray as I'm going through them, and so normally it's a Starbucks of some sort, and this, this Sunday, since I was going to be here with you guys, I found this, um, this great coffee shop on State Street, something about a bad donkey, but uh, I, was, I was there hanging out, and they got a, a big flat screen TV in there, and I was, I was watching ESPN and going through my notes at the same time, because I'm a guy, and uh, we watch ESPN until we got the dialogue down, and sitting there, and there's this story comes on, and it was, uh, it was such a God moment this morning, watching ESPN, drinking bad donkey coffee, <laughs> as God speaks to me through ESPN, <laughs> And there's this story, maybe you saw it last night, fellas, if you watched it last night, but there's a story of John, this kid, John Chalice, um, for the Tampa Bay Rays, he inspired the whole team to do what they did and make it to the World Series. And that this, this kid has cancer, and he got to play one game his senior year of high school. Uh, he's only 97 pounds. His cancer was eating away his body. And he got his first at-bat, his one game at-bat, he actually got a hit in his game. And he wrote under his hat, in the bill of his hat, he wrote these words. And I'm sitting there watching this and crying, watching ESPN, drinking my uh, monkey mocha or whatever it was. And he wrote this, belief plus courage equals life. 
And the Tampa Bay Rays have been writing that on their roster lineup every game. And they've got it written in, their, in the dugout. And I was sitting there because it hit me so hard because that bridge between belief and living the life that God wants of us, that bridge is usually courage. And God gives us that courage if we ask him. Belief plus courage equals life. You know, um, you heard the story of Elevation Church a little bit when Mike came up and introed us. Uh, four years ago, we moved to Davis County, the North Davis County area. God had called us to plant a church. And um, there's a lot of things that brought us to that decision. When I was, I'm 29 years old, and everybody was like, that was four years ago, so you can guess how old I was. They're like, you're too young. I had all these people tell me, you're just too young. Don't do it. Too young. I had pastors, we were going to get a team of pastors together to go plant the church, and I had other pastors tell me, no, 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 there's, there's too many heads. You got too many pastors. Anything with more than one head's a monster. What? Stop reading Greek mythology. <laughs> so they were telling us all these things. Don't do this. You can't do this. They told us, don't go after 20-somethings because they don't tithe. Okay, that's great. Let's let them all go to hell then. <laughs> that's good. Sorry, if you guys had a real job, we'd help you out here. <laughs> they told us all these things, and I actually started thinking about them and going, yeah, they're right. I am too young. Yeah, I don't know if God's really called me to do this. Yeah, maybe, maybe we do got too many people on our team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe 20-somethings. Yeah, maybe they are lazy. <laughs> just joking. I was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I realized, I got to that point where it's like, do you really believe this? Are you going to do and, and live the life that God intends for you? And that bridge between the two became really courage. And stepping out and doing it and going, all right, God, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll make that step. Because really, I wanted to go to Hawaii. I always figured there need to be pastors in Hawaii. <laughs> You think I'm joking, right? I literally wanted to go to Hawaii. I was like, send me, Jesus, send me. I'll go. That's an easy courage step. But Utah? Have you been there, God? <laughs> I mean, seriously, Utah? Yeah, they got skiing, but we could go once a year. <laughs> Sometimes it just takes that step of courage to suck it up. Almost like you've seen that movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, when he makes that step and he can't see anything. That blind step almost of knowing that it's there but not being able to see what the ultimate outcome is going to look like. But you know it because God told you it, making that step. Let's take a break and see what happens when when we take that courage step from an interview we did with Sam.
Before I came to Utah, I was uh, living in Canada and I was working as a consulting structural engineer in Canada and I was totally focused on my career. I became a believer in my mid-twenties and uh, at that point I began a walk with God that was uh, probably pretty typical. I attended church, I didn't really do any, anything else and I focused most of my time, my attention on just developing my career. I wanted to just make my mark on the world. At 32, I met my husband now, Joe Albano, and uh, we met in Mexico. We were scuba diving there. So within three months, we were engaged, and a year after that, we were married. I had never wanted to have kids, and he had always wanted to have kids. During that, the first few years of marriage, we had, uh, we'd moved to Utah, and we were living in um, South Weber area. And Joe and I had been attending a church up there that offered um, adult Sunday school classes. And so I began to be involved with this adult Sunday school class. I began to really enjoy learning God's Word. And I began to really feel solidified in what I believed. And uh, Joe said to me, do you want to have kids? And I said, nope. And he said, well, I do. And I said, well, I don't. And he said, well, you need to pray about it. Pray all you want. I'm not going to change my mind. I've never wanted to have kids. I don't even like kids. And I don't really feel that, uh, that you're being fair because we had agreed, and he had agreed with me at the beginning, that we would, he would marry me even if I never did want to have children. That's how we restored that broken engagement. I was in a Bible study at that time, and we had been studying 1 Peter. And we got to 1 Peter 3. And as I was reading 1 Peter 3, and I just read it this morning, it was, it was very clear that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. I felt actually pretty good about that because I thought, I've submitted to Joe. I left my job in Toronto. I left my family. I left my friends. As I um, prayed and as I read, I realized that I was not obeying God's word. And I went back to 1 Peter 3 and I looked at all of those words in the Greek, what it meant to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And I was pierced because I realized that wasn't me. That was not me at all. And that I didn't have character that God wanted me to have. As I prayed, God really spoke to me and just said to me, yeah, you know, you may have submitted in many areas to your husband, but not in the matter of having children. This problem of children had been boiling around and rolling around inside of me, and I was laying in my bed, and I was just whispering, God, please, I would rather die than be a mother. I just don't want to have children. It's just not who I am. I would rather be told that I had cancer and was going to die in three months than to be told that I had to be a mother for the rest of my life. So for me, this decision led to the death of who I was, for all of my hopes, for all of my dreams, for all of my own plans for my own life. They were over. And, uh, and then I think I struggled with is God really good? I just continued to pray and God was very clear. It's like, no, this is my will for you. And I think that at that moment for me, I had to make this decision. Was everything that I had learned and everything that I believed, was it really 
true faith, I realized that if I was not going to obey, then I was a hypocrite. At that moment, I had to make this decision. And the decision was either you say you believe and really believe and then walk in what you believe, or you just have to throw it away. I, I felt like I had no choice. I told Joe about it, and he uh, was ecstatic, you know, that I was going to try it. But I was like, okay, this is my, my submission is this. Okay, we will try from January 1 to December 31st. And if we don't get pregnant, we're done, and you're never bringing it up again. And sure enough, you know, I got pregnant. Well, then I was devastated. And this, I had this belief that God loved me, and he would give me what I wanted to be happy. I never got angry at God because I had enough understanding of who He was to know that, that He was doing these things in my life for a purpose. And I know He had a plan for my life, but was it really for my good? And what if my good and His good weren't the same thing, you know? Here I am and my baby is born, as we say, if you're a Princess Bride fan, mostly dead. And his Apgar, uh, when he was born, was four. And so we, um, I was laying there, and Joe just began to pray in the operating room out loud, and uh, just beseeching God for the life of this child. And in the midst of Joe's prayer, we heard this tiny cry, and he breathed on his own. And, uh, and God just had a little resurrection moment right there in the, in the OR. He's, he's our child, and he's, I think, a miracle baby. God has real plans and a purpose for him in his life, because I, I think that his birth in and of itself, that he's alive today, and that he's totally bright, um, is uh, it's a miracle. And um, most babies in that situation are either bathe or die. They don't make it. They have severe brain damage, or they're normal. And Noah's normal, and he's actually even a gifted kid, so he, I, you know, it's a miracle. What happened to me was just really through studying God's Word that not only did my faith grow, my relationship with God has gotten deeper. My relationship with my husband has changed and, and my whole life has changed because I, I believe I was obedient to God. You know, when we start taking these, these steps of courage and truly being obedient to what God's called us, what God's said to us, and what we say, yeah, I believe, when we start taking those, those steps, we, we grow in our faith, and it leads us to bigger steps sometimes, as God is, is, is constantly molding us and bringing us to that life that he intends for us. And, uh, and one thing I just want to also point out, too, Remember, men, that scripture in Peter calls us to die to our wives as Jesus died for the church. It's not just, it's a, it's a give and take on both sides. And there's a, God's calling us to something too. And God's, God's challenging us in our, in our walk with him. Bottom line is this, everything we've talked about this morning. That that opening song from Sister Hazel, you know, it says, if you want to change your life, change your mind. If you, wanted, if you want something different, it's not your actions. 
that are the problem. It's your beliefs because your actions are going to follow your beliefs. Change your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Change your beliefs, and you're going to change your actions. And that's the real active faith that God seeks in us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the hall of faith chapter. Verse 6, it says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Get that, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. The story of Rahab, if we keep finishing all of chapter 2, we find this about Rahab. Not only was her life spared from destruction when Jericho was destroyed and she hangs a scarlet uh, ribbon out the, uh, the, the window and they know not to mess with her house, but it says that she lives with the Israelites. She lives with the people of God forever. That her life is completely rewarded and blessed. Not only is it just a spared life, but it's, it's a life of, wow, I get to hang with these guys that God is blessing and taking care of. And it doesn't just stop there. When we get to the Gospels and we start reading the lineage of Jesus, you know whose name pops up in the lineage of Jesus? Rahab. Rahab. Rahab gets to play this huge part in the epic redemption story of the world because of a prostitute stepping out when everything around her said, no, don't do it that way, and acting out on her faith and her belief in God. Rahab pleased God. Rahab was rewarded. Rahab was blessed. So let me ask you some questions as we wrap this up. What would this look like today? For you. What would this look like today and what God's speaking to you about? Now, maybe there's some of you in this room that God's actually been, you've got some God-sized things going on, some huge things where God said, go plant a church in Hawaii. Call me, by the way, if you do that. I <laughs> might want to go. Maybe God's been like, you got you to step and you've been fighting it. You're listening to everybody else. And they've labeled you like Rahab. The whole city's been speaking out against you. It just doesn't fit culturally for you. Maybe there's that, that step that you're just like, I, I just lack the courage. And you know what blank is in your life, what God's calling you to. Is it just always going to be there? Is it going to always be something that you just wrote about in a journal? Is it always going to be something that you pray about? Or are you going to step out on it? Are you truly going to believe it and do something with it? What would our lives be like if we lived like that? What, would ble what blessings would befall us? God wants to bless us. Do you realize that? He wants to bless us. 
What blessings would we have? Here's even the bigger picture. What would Utah look like if we lived out our faith? What would our schools look like? What would our state government look like? What would our neighborhoods look like? What would our office look like? What would our families look like if we lived it out? We truly lived it out. You realize this. With or without Rahab, God was going to move. Get that. With or without her, he was going to move. Jericho was going down. But when Rahab acted on the beliefs and the faith that she had, not only was her, her and her family spared, but she was richly rewarded, richly blessed. And she became part of God moving. And she taught me something, and I hope she taught you something. God, help me take that next step. Help me take that next step, because I will act on what I believe. And if I want to change my life, I got to change my mind. I got to change my beliefs. If I can invite our worship team to come hang out with me. Will you surrender today? Will you surrender today? Will you surrender to that obedience? Surrender to that courage that you need? Surrender to that God that's calling, beckoning? What, what are your steps going to be? This is, you know, I won't be back next Sunday, so maybe I can hammer this really far. <laughs> Look, we usually leave a Sunday, and we go, wow, that was great, good, felt, felt tingly. What are you going to do this week? What step are you going to take this week? What are you going to do? Maybe it's something you need to do today. Maybe it's going to be something as little as, hey, there's a, a new book that they've got available for you guys out there. It's called Wavelength, and it's one of a friend of Pastor Dave, his uh, friend, just an ordinary guy, just wrote this book about, and like every chapter is a story about how God was just moving him in faith to act out. And it's an amazing book, and maybe it's you picking one of these up and saying, God, all right, encourage me. Give me the courage to go on. Maybe it's something little like that, or maybe it's, maybe it's you making a decision today that, you know what, I... I need to start surrounding myself with people that are living out their faith. I need to surround myself with people that walk the way of faith that I want to walk. Maybe that's what you need to do. And you need to grab somebody here today and grab them and look at them and go, you're meeting with me every week for breakfast. <laughs> and you're buying. <laughs> Teach me your ways. Or maybe it's that huge Indiana Jones, crazy faith leap. And you know what God's been teaching you. Maybe today's the day that you speak it to somebody else and go, God's called me to do this. Hold me accountable. I got to take this step. I got to do it. Will you surrender? Will you surrender? God, help us to take that next step. God, give us the courage that we need, Lord, to let this faith and, and these beliefs inside of us grow into something more than just cognitive knowledge, God, but faith that's lived out, faith that, as James would say, is alive and not dead. 
Help us to change our families, change our, our cities, God, because you're working through us. And you're calling us and you're beckoning us. And we're, we're going. We're stepping it out. God, I pray today that you would speak into the hearts and minds of everybody in this room, including myself, God, especially as we go into this time of worship, God, as we, as we surrender ourselves to you. Speak to us, God. Give us that next step for this week. What am I going to do, God? Answer that question for me. Answer it for us. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, we're about to take offering up because it's a part of worship. And this is all right in the same vein of stepping out and acting. Because a lot of times we trust our money more than we say we. And we go, yeah, I trust God. Do we? Do our actions line up with that? And if you're a visitor here and this isn't your home church, don't, don't feel obligated. But maybe this is that step. Maybe this is that step for us of going, God, I trust you. The economy is crazy, but I trust you, God, and I surrender, and I worship, and I give.